When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Football Social Daily, Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily, the award-winning Premier League podcast. Thomas Frank calls it a circus, but are we all the clowns? Ivan Tony returns to Premier League action with a goal, but was it all a little bit too much? Was the fanfare overhyped? And dare I say it, was it just a little bit cringy? We'll talk about that on today's Football Social Daily. We'll also talk about problems at Crystal Palace. We're left feeling a little bit sorry for Roy Hodgson after a pretty brutal banner on a pretty brutal afternoon for Palace, beaten 5-0 by Arsenal. Where do they turn next? And is Hodgson next in line for the sack? We'll also talk about the latest transfer rumours, of which many of them are at St. James's Park. Newcastle United facing a mini exodus. Three players linked with moves away over the last 48 hours. One of them has already gone, and the other two are major players for Eddie Howe. We'll talk about that on today's Football Social Daily. My name's Niall, joined as always by Joel Tudor and Marley Anderson. Morning, boys. Good morning. Good morning. Now, you might notice Joel's in the studio with me. Marley's at home. And the reason Marley's not in the studio today is because baby Shola, any minute now by the sounds of it. <laughs> I bet people are probably thinking, why is he on if he's just gave birth? Like, you know, if, <laughs> like if, uh, if he's... No, he's not here yet. Um... But yes, I mean, technically we're a month away, so uh, it sounds like a long time, but it seems like yesterday that he was six months away and I wasn't wasn't fussed at all. But then we had a, a little sort of uh, baby shower type thing yesterday and then it, it, I realised that like, it's pretty close. So can't be coming and spending six hours in an office with you nerds. I'll just stay at home and be on, be on red alert to drive to the hospital. <laughs> what, what were you more excited for? The eventual Newcastle takeover or the eventual birth of baby Marley. Oh, in the words of Jose Mourinho, if I speak, I'm in big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. Yeah, I'll leave that on to the imagination. Well, there's only one place we're going to start on today's podcast and it's not with Marley's imminent arrival. It's with someone who's returned. Listen to this. Recognise that music, boys? Brings back memories. How could we not? Memories of childhood. Oh, wow. That is the entrance music for WWE legend, The Undertaker. And incidentally, it was the music that Brentford used to announce the return of Ivan Tony after eight months out of the game. With a betting ban, Tony returned at the weekend and scored in Brentford's much-needed 3-2 win 
over Nottingham Forest on Saturday. Let's start with Get in the Sea, which if you've never joined us on the podcast before, is our usual Monday feature where myself, Joel and Marley really get some frustrations off of our chests and we pick one thing each to moan about from the course of the weekend. Now, lots of people have been pretty happy to see Ivan Tony back, Marley, but I know his return is something that you've got a few grievances about, let's just say. It just baffles me, the whole the whole thing of, like, I get that he's back and it's great for Brentford, but the whole media narrative and, and everything encompassing the whole the whole situation can get in the sea for me because I just thought it's it's it was weird it was like he was being welcomed back from this like career threatening injury he's done both ACLs and broke his neck in a freak tackle or something like that and everyone was like oh my god he's back um you know the Undertaker theme music made me nearly maybe puke um the the whole thing especially as well like I, I could go on about this for, for ages, but the first thing he did when he came back was be like, yeah, I'll go to a big club if the money's right. And straight away, Brentford are just simping for him, like, oh yeah, Ivan's back this weekend. Blah, blah, blah. He's on free kicks, he's captain, he's starting, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this is this kid's going to leave you immediately. Like, just treat him as any other player. It's any other week. He's back from a betting ban, which he should never have done. No pun intended. He's not defied the odds to come back from, you know, near career ending circumstances. And it just made me think like, it's, if this, this whole um, energy is not going to be replicated in nine months time, eight months time when Sandro Tonali gets banned, uh, comes back from his ban, it's going to be, oh, there's that little Italian gambler coming back for Newcastle. Oh, is he going to be the same player? Blah, blah, blah. It's just, I don't know whether it's the English thing, it's whether or, or it's the 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 expectation that Ivan Tony's going to move on to a big club. Um, everything just made me a bit weird about it. I thought the energy from from all around the situation was really strange. Um, and then to top it all off, he goes and cheats by moving the ball at a free kick, and ironically, should be banned again <laughs> for for moving the ball and uh, blatantly breaking the rules to uh, to score against Forest from the free kick. So. Yeah, just just hated the whole thing. And then Neil Morpé scored a winner and it was an absolute banger as well. And I was like, this this game could not wind me up more right now. <laughs> I understand what you're saying about Tony's return. There was a lot of fanfare about it. Like the press conference before the game, all of the questions were about Ivan Tony. But I understand it's a big story. A player who was on the verge of an England call-up, scoring lots of goals, didn't go to the World Cup when maybe could have gone to the World Cup and then subsequently turns out he's found guilty and banned for betting issues. I can understand why people are interested in his return, but it has gone a little bit over the top. And actually, Thomas Frank described it, Joel, as a circus. But he says the Premier League's about drama. The show must go on. And obviously he was speaking quite tongue-in-cheek and he had a smile on his face and everything. But still, do you think it was a little bit over the top, the whole Ivan Tony return? I mean, on one side, I can understand the, the logic around there being attention for him because he's one of the best strikers in England anyway. He's been linked to all the big clubs. He's been in the media while he's been away, you know, on all these podcasts flirting with all these different teams and how he'd love to join Arsenal potentially. I mean, I feel like it was only natural. There was a build-up towards this day. Ever since he got the ban and everyone knew the exact day that he was going to come back in January... We all knew it was going to be a bit of a fanfare, especially considering the situation that Brentford are in at the moment where, you know, they're not really scoring many goals and they were literally waiting on him. 
maybe if Brentford were doing much better and they were surviving, I think everyone might have taken less of a such a strong eye towards. But is the fact that Brentford literally are on their hands and knees waiting for him to return, begging for him to return, and he's come back like the Messiah, the second coming, and said, Brentford, don't worry, guys, I'll save your club. But I just don't like the way in which Brentford literally like, pandered to him, you know, with all the big pre-match setup and circus. I know you just mentioned there, now about Thomas Frank saying it was a circus. Well, mm. then how about looking to your own home in terms of the way in which the club are treating him, not the media? Your own club are building up this ma- massive fanfare for a guy who at any given opportunity, whether it's now, whether it's on the 31st of January, if an offer comes in, he'll, he'll dip. No, he'll, he'll stay till the summer, Joel, I think. He will, but I mean, I wouldn't put it past, like, let's say Arsenal get desperate and put an 80, 90 million bid in. I think the, I think things could happen pretty quickly, to be honest. Mm. He'll only stay till the summer if nobody comes from in January because they haven't seen enough of him since he's been back. Um, but that's another thing, like the way... Um, in the in the week before this, the build up to the to his return, it was like um, he was he was giving it. Oh, you know, people are people are doubting me and stuff. I'm going to prove the doubt was wrong. Nobody was doubting your ability as a player ever. I don't know where he's got this narrative from. Like everybody who who's blessed with the the ability of vision and knowing football knows Ivan Tony's probably the best striker outside the the big six or whatever you want to call it. He's absolutely class, and he's he's acting like everybody's wrote him off because of a, a six-month ban. Nobody's, nobody was writing him off. You don't become a crap player in six months for, for a six-month ban or eight-month ban or whatever it was. It's just like, I don't know, I just feel like he, he revels in this whole, like, oh, everybody everybody wants me to fail and stuff. Nobody wants you to fail, number one, because no one really cares about Brentford. So it's not like you're Spurs and all the Arsenal fans hate you and want you to come back so they create this narrative or Chelsea and every, you know, or Liverpool and everybody, all the City fans and all the Man United fans pile on you and say, oh, he's going to be crap when he comes back. You're Brentford. They're one of the most forgettable teams in Premier League history. They don't, they just meander along. Nobody, nobody hates them. Nobody loves them except their own fans. Everyone just sort of respects Brentford because they're a good football inside. And they've got Ivan Tony up front who's like the star. I think everyone wants him to do well. And he's coming out with this whole thing of, Oh, you know, yeah, I'm going to prove the doubt is wrong. I manifested this goal for myself, and wow, I just think it's think he's quite an unlikable character, to be honest. When he's saying things like in the summer when he was on that boat on a party, and a girl talks to him, and he's like, F- "Brentford," and it's like, where where's the respect for for a club that has made you who you are? And then he comes back and he's like, "Oh, I want to, you know, if 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 somebody comes in in the summer, blah blah blah, I might leave and whatever." So it's just, I don't know, the whole thing just makes me a bit uncomfortable. I don't know whether it's him or it's it's everything around him. I, I, it's just a bit weird. I didn't know whether to feel happy for him. Mm. I know he's been out for ages. I guess you have to swing more towards giving Ivan Tony credit for coming back in the way that he did. But as Marley said, it's not like he's come back from a broken leg or knee ligament damage. And I know betting is serious and obviously rightly was banned for it but something physical rather than outside of the game Marley's clearly not an empath <laughs> I think no honestly I can I can see both strings to the bow in this one because I can understand it it will have been difficult mentally to you know be completely taken away from football not being allowed to train with your teammates and could, literally you're just on your own in a sense people can say yeah he's getting paid millions per month and everything's sweet and rosy but at the end of the day he still has to deal with that and he still has to deal with the pressure of coming back with the 
expectation that everyone had in him from last season, which was that he was a bit of a killer in front of goal. But I think Marley's right. What pressure? Because uh, I'm sure it can't be pressure, pressure, pressure from Brentford back. fans. He's done loads for Brentford. So I don't think the pressure from within the club can be that great because basically if it wasn't for him, who knows where they'd have ended up in the last two seasons. Maybe pressure himself to just replicate what he's done the previous season because prior to him getting that ban, he was getting talked upon going to all these sorts of clubs, getting England call-ups for the World Cup. And I think he felt just... Maybe from the media, but like Marley said, it's not as if like everyone was waiting with bated breath to see if Ivan Tony's going to come back and do the same thing. I don't think anyone really cared, maybe. I think it was more so just everyone had expectations when the key came back. And I think the only reason why I'd have empathy for him is because obviously gambling is an addiction and it isn't something that we should be taking lightly as if to say he has control because maybe at some point he didn't have control and maybe he did feel like he was spiralling. But... Like you've both mentioned, he hasn't. It is in his possession to stop. In that sense, it's not like he's a hero. He's broken the rules. I agree football. with you, but I do also think he d- did deserve to be banned. Oh yeah, yeah, that's the rules. That's hundred percent. He's so brought I, the game. I, I into, have a foot in both jeopardy. camps here. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. I mean, it remains to be seen what the details are of that. Who knows the extent to it? And I'm not really keen to speculate on it. But I think f- the only reason I'd have empathy is because I think the striker position is probably the hardest position to come back in and hit the ground running. Because your teammates might have changed behind you in those six months, the Premier League might have changed a little bit. You've got you've got an obvious variable, haven't you? Like an obvious metric. How many goals has he scored? Yeah, literally. If he goes five games without scoring, oh, he's not the same player. Exactly. Of course, of course. He whereas, is. whereas when Rio Ferdinand returned from his ban, I feel like a centre half can hide a little bit more. I feel like he can take a little bit more time to be accepted into the team and get back to his level. Whereas Ivan Tony has to come into Brentford, and if he doesn't score, like you just said, for five to ten games, everyone's thinking, is he done? Should Brentford even keep him? Like, what's the what's the score with? I it? mean, it's just the fickle nature of English football, isn't it? If he doesn't score for three or four games, people will go, "Well, he's been out for eight months. What do you yeah. expect?" If he doesn't score for six or seven games, people are like, "Is he really as good as he once was?" Giving him benefit that, of the doubt. Yeah, the benefit of the doubt, absolutely. And then you'll get all the of media a sudden, all of a sudden being on top of him, saying, "Well, yeah. is he the really that same striker? Was it a purple <laughs> patch last season?" That's why I think he's felt pressure because yeah. at some point before he came back, he would have been thinking, maybe he was thinking 100%, I'll get back to winning ways in myself. But if I don't score for five games, yeah. the pressure on me in this country is going to be ballistic. But also, I think that Marley makes a good point in the fact that Ivan Tony was on free kicks. If Brentford had got a penalty, you know that he would have taken yeah, it. 100%. So it's not like he's relying on goals from open play to kind of get himself back in the groove. He will have got a chance in the first couple of games. I guess to get that first goal when you've been out for a while, and even if you sign for a new club, for example, which this might feel like, where's the cliche bell for Brentford? You know, the fact that he's been out for so long and they've been struggling. But to get that first one, not that he needs confidence, as we've discussed, he's a very self-confident player, but that will give him that that element of relaxation. Yeah, I mean, it's always going to be a psychological thing. I mean, strikers... You know, like I said, it's their currency goals. You know, if they go, if if your team wins 6-0 and your striker doesn't get one, the most angry bloke in that dressing room is your striker because he hasn't scored. Um, so it's it's one of them where it will be a big thing for him. But yeah, like you say, he's always going to get chances at Brentford because everything goes through him. He's on free kicks, he's on, he's on penalties, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there is always going to be chances there. Um, but it's good for him to get... You know, get one sooner rather than later, even if he had to cheat to, to bend it around the wall. And somehow VAR didn't see it. I don't know what, what they're looking at. Do they not look at every goal? Are we not told they look at every goal? What needs to get in the sea the most for you? Is it 
The Undertaker music. <laughs> no, that brings back nice nostalgia. That was cringe, man. That was cringe. Um, I don't know, just the whole, the whole situation. <laughs> Everything to do with with Ivan Tony's return in that week needs to get in the seat. Undertaker music, silly interviews, everything. His even holding up his. Uh, Holding up the shirt for Uncle Brian, everyone was like, oh, Uncle Brian had a fiver on Tony to score a free kick, like just instantly making himself a meme. Uh, it was just hilarious. All right, well, Marley's not happy about Ivan Tony's return. What do you think? Let us know on social media. Links are in the description of this podcast. You can also hit the link to the Telegram chat as well. I'm sure there'll be plenty of discussion about Ivan Tony in there. Next up, we'll hear Joel's get in the sea as well as talking about some of the latest transfer rumours. It looks like there are going to be some outgoings at Newcastle United. We'll talk about that with Marley as well after this. This is Football Social Daily, an award-winning Premier League podcast. Ivan Tony is back in the Premier League. Marley was a little bit annoyed about how it all unfolded over the weekend. That was his get in the sea. And get in the sea is our chance to basically have a moan and a whine about anything that's annoyed us over the Premier League weekend. Not so many games across the weekends in January because teams are having their respective January breaks. So not a lot to pick from. Slim pickings, Joel. I've thrown something into the, the Red Sea at the moment and it's going to be Mo Salah Ooh. he should be very very accustomed to that sea because it's not far away from Egypt and for me it just it felt like the same as the Andre Onana situation where if anyone doesn't know Mo Salah has what well, well, he came out off of a, an Egypt game injured I think he had a hamstring injury and Jurgen Klopp just confirmed recently that he's been sent back to Liverpool for treatment although he may go back to the Africa Cup of Nations if Egypt make it that far and compete again with them. For me, it's just a case of you have to pick one or the other. Sure, Liverpool's medical department might be a little bit better, but I'm sure that Egypt's national team and their players would actually really benefit from having their main man around the team, giving them the confidence boost during the games. Because imagine they get to like the quarterfinals or the semifinals, then Mo Salah just comes and strolls in and says, right, guys, time for business isn't it I'm ready to play again I'd be looking at him thinking we've just gone through the whole tournament without you we're fine why should you just come in and stroll in when you pick and choose when you come and play for my play for the team probably because he's the best Egyptian player to ever live and if this was Messi for Argentina nobody would be having this attitude <laughs> different it, difference is Mo Salah has barely done it for his country he barely does it. He's not even done anything in this tournament so far. He's not done anything in the majority of the Africa Cup of well, Nations. Well, with all due respect to what many people think is the best player of all time, he didn't do it either in major tournaments. Who? Lionel Messi. He won in the World Cup. About a year ago, yeah. I mean, yeah but but what about it. the other 20 years he was playing for Argentina before that? I think that's harsh. I think, I don't, really I, harsh. I think you're being harsh on Salah. I think this could be the harshest get in the seat of all time. Salah, Salah's Egypt's all-time top scorer. So? Is it, so he's, he's done it for his country, hasn't he? Like, all right, he's playing against Ghana and Algeria and whatever, but he still scored all them goals. This guy's like, this is a hero in Egypt. He walks back. It's not Onana who's been playing rubbish and isn't the best player and has an ego of, you know, ego of Zlatan and the ability of me on a Sunday league. I think this could be the harshest get in the sea we've ever done. No, you've put Ivan it's... Tony in for coming back and scoring after eight months out. And you've put Mo Salah in for being injured. It's not for being injured. It's for the fact that he's gone back to Liverpool with the hope that Egypt probably go out so he can continue. I bet he'll come back. If Egypt go out in the next week, which is actually looking quite likely because Kate Verde have completely washed their uh, group. 
If Egypt come out in the next week, I'll hedge everything I have on Mo Salah being back by February the 1st. If he's got 100%. a hamstring tear, I think it's exactly what you said, Joel, which is the Liverpool medical team will Probably be better that. than the Egypt national team medical team. Probably, but I feel like surely they've got the, the, the equipped people in place. It's not like he needs surgery, is it? It's physiotherapy when it comes to something like that. And the fact that it's a tournament as well, you would surely just be around your teammates during that time. I don't, I don't quite understand it personally. Maybe people think that's acceptable, but it's for the fact that I can, I have a feeling, and I've seen a lot of people around Liverpool, you know, whether it's Graham Souness saying that Liverpool shouldn't be sending him back if he gets fit or not during the period where if Egypt make it far. For me, I feel like Jurgen Klopp's probably absolutely laughing his head off the fact that Salah's come back because I bet it's not even as bad as it is. Egypt. Maybe I have looked a little bit shaky during this AFCON. I haven't been keeping up too much with the Africa Cup of Nations, but I know that they needed a last-minute penalty, which Salah scored against Mozambique to get a 2-2 draw. And then, as you mentioned, Cape Verde, a small island nation off the coast of West Africa, they're top of the group. They've got six points. Egypt have two. They've drawn two games, and they probably were lucky to get that draw against Mozambique. So there's a chance that Egypt can still go through. If they beat Cape Verde, they will go through in second place. There's also a chance, because of the way AFCON works, if you finish third in the group, if you're the best third-place finisher across all the groups, you then go through to the knockout stages. So Egypt aren't out of it yet, but there's a chance that Egypt might not even make it to the knockout stages. If they lose to Cape Verde and one of the other teams in the group Springs a surprise and wins. Mm. That puts Egypt out of Afcon, and that was with Salah, without Salah. Yeah, for half for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't do too much for him convert the penalty. Let's see how they do in the next few games. Anyway, I mean, if they go through and suddenly have this amazing tournament, then did they really need him in this tournament? Really, Trezeguet will turn up, carry them through. Villa, Villa. No, I, I'm wanting to see Amir Zaki come through. I'm dying to see his return. Like, that's a real Undertaker return. Avram Grant got booked in the Zambia game as well. Oh, yeah. the weekend. Is, is he a Zambia? Yeah. He's the Zambia manager, Avram. Uncle Avram, yes. I did. I watched a bit of the Ghana game the other day and obviously I know Chris Hewton was there, but seeing him on the touchline, I was like, this, what, what year is this? <laughs> Had little, little glasses on as well. He looked like, I don't know, just, I was like, oh, because he, he worked at Newcastle as well. I wanted, wanted to do well, but... That game, that game was shocking, the Ghana game. Africa Cup of Nations always brings up some interesting stuff. Like We've had the Prowling Tiger celebration. We've got Cape Verde and Bebe, a Manchester United player from about 20 it's years ago. From 40 ripping yards in out. free kicks from yeah, halfway line. And then we Ridiculous. saw, what was it? The Gambia's plane decompressing midair, so they had to do an emergency yeah, Onana landing. not being able to make it. That reminds me of... Uh, of Gary Lewin, the England physio, when he was uh, celebrating a goal. I think it was the 2006 World Cup or something. He broke his leg. So the physio had to get stretched off. <laughs> so they had to have a backup physio come. <laughs> like one of the other physio guys had to like take his place. It was funny. And do you know what? Someone who's tried their hand at international management, as well as club management, is part of what I'm about to throw into the sea. And that's Roy Hodgson. Now, I'm not actually throwing Roy himself into the sea because despite his Palace side getting battered 5-0 by Arsenal in the Premier League at the weekend, it's just the third time, I think, in his English football career, which spans, what, 50 years, something like that, that he's ever guided a team to a loss by a five-goal margin or more. And let's face it, this Arsenal team are a good side and his Crystal Palace team are not in good form. But there was this banner held up by the Palace fans basically along the lines of poor decision-making has cost us and it's going to cost us in the future at the football club. I'm very much paraphrasing there. You just need to go on social media to have a look and see exactly what the Palace fans think. And actually, that leads me to throw into the sea 
Steve Parrish, because I actually understand what the Palace fans are getting at here. It's something we've mentioned on the podcast before, Marley. I think Steve Parrish needs to get in the sea because sacking Patrick Vieira was a brave decision when Palace was staring down the barrel of relegation around about April last year. They then brought Roy Hodgson in, first game at Selhurst Park. They beat Leicester with a Mateta winner in the last minute. And all of a sudden, they were clear of that Royal Rumble. There was about six teams down there level on points. Roy brought that feel-good factor back. They picked up a few points and in the end, they were well clear of relegation. But the decision to keep Roy Hodgson on in the summer, I think that's what Steve Parrish needs to get thrown into the sea for because this is a retired man he's brought back to try and put out a fire and that's something Roy Hodgson did. Now Hodgson, because he loves the club, he's a Palace fan, he's never going to say no to a second stint at the job and an extended contract. Why Crystal Palace haven't thought ahead, been more proactive and done some more future-proofing to avoid this situation happening again, I do not know. I just don't understand it. And I know this might be reactionary off the back of a 5-0 loss. I just don't understand what the decision-making process is at the club. And that's what that banner from the fans, I think, was trying to get at. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I agree. I mean, we've we've said it before. that They're a club completely um, just... <sighs> Just uh, I don't know, allergic to taking taking chances. Like they don't, they they shy away from the tough decisions. And I think everybody knew that Roy is not the long term manager, a long term plan for Crystal Palace in the summer. It's literally the time to be ruthless and say, "Thank you, Roy. Just go and enjoy, go and enjoy your life. You're not gonna say no." And you're not going to be here for five, six, seven years. It's not a long-term plan. Why didn't they bring anyone in in the summer? I don't understand. And I actually feel sorry for Roy Hodgson here because now he's going to be the full guy. He's going to be sacked by Crystal Palace, which is a sad way for him to end his tenure when actually what he could have done is just walked away in the summer after guiding them to safety, his last managerial job. He was brought out of retirement anyway to come back and save them, in inverted commas. Obviously, the club, when they offered him a new contract, he wasn't going to say no, but I just don't understand. Like Palace have cost Roy Hodgson his dignity as a manager, I think. And I know there's no room for sentiment in football, but I feel a bit sorry for him. I do. I feel I feel sorry for him because, like like we say, he's never going to say no to the job. He's going to want to carry on until he, he's too proud to just say, no, it's all right, you know, I'll I'll just retire and you go and get someone else. But I don't, I don't think they ever thought about getting someone else. Um, they, they still seem burnt and scarred off going for Frank De Boer and losing seven games in a row and having to sack him. And that was like six years ago now, something like that, like a long time ago. And then they went for, I think they went for Hodgson and then Vieira and then Hodgson again. It's just like they they sort of put the hand near the fire and then go, ooh, it's a bit warm. I don't fancy that and we'll go back. But, you know, this is a, this is a club that's never won a trophy in their entire existence as, as you Love, love mentioning every now and again, but <laughs> yeah. it's it's obvious. Like why, like why they don't have a go, take a risk, try and put something in place where you can be ambitious. And I, I feel a bit sorry for Crystal Palace fans when you know they. What do you want from this season, Crystal Palace fans? Oh, we, we want to finish in the top half. Like that's miserable. I know they've they've kind of. I don't think they've they might they must have finished in the top half at some point, but not not often. And that's what that's what they want from. It's not enough. And I th- do you know, I don't think finishing in Europe is an unrealistic expectation for a club like Palace, who are based in London and have been a Premier League club now for what, 10 years? 
Yeah. They should be looking to the top half at the bare minimum. They've seen clubs like their rivals Brighton overtake them and get into Europe. They've seen Brentford get onto the fringes of Europe. They've seen Aston Villa come from the Championship and get into Europe. Wolves have been in Europe twice. What I'm saying is Palace have been in the league long enough now. Why haven't Crystal Palace ever been in the top 10 in the Premier League? And maybe that's the thing, Marley, exactly as you say. Their inability to be brave and take a risk. They might feel that they were brave by sacking Vieira, but was that a panic? Because I think Vieira might well have been able to turn it around and keep him up. There was enough games left to go. It was a, it was a panic, and I think when they sacked him, they were about 13th, 14th, 15th. But there was, like you said, there was seven or eight clubs in that mess, um, and they, they twitched first, and they went, oh my God, like we could get sucked down into this, and then we'll never come back because we've got no sort of... We haven't planned for that type of thing. Um but you look at Palace at the minute and every time they get a good player, it's where do they go from there? Like they're just waiting to get to get picked off. At the minute, they've got Elise, Eze and Gehi and they are, they're brilliant players and they there is no chance they stay at Crystal Palace for the, like in, in two years time, maybe three, there is zero chance any of those three players play for Crystal Palace because they're just waiting to be signed because the club is just sitting there waiting just they're always there. Like, like I always say, they're always 13th. Who's going to say, no, no, I'm going to stay? Zaha made so many errors in his career by staying too long. And that's that's going to ultimately sort of play into Eze's time. And Eze's thinking, like, if Man City want me or Chelsea want me or Arsenal want me, why would I stay here? Like, I don't want to be in another Wilfred Zaha who gets to 31 and goes, right, who wants me? And he ends up on the scrap heap in Turkey where no one cares about him anymore. It's just, it's a weird situation. But Steve Parrish is like, just, he doesn't, I think there is a way to make Crystal Palace successful. And I would build it on young players and the youth in London and say, if you're a youth player in London, Crystal Palace is the best place They've for They've got youth. a great academy. They've got a great academy. Yeah. yeah. But they don't kind of... I think I think they could build more on it, and then if it is, if you do become a selling club and you sell five or six uh, youth products, you put yourself in a very good financial position, and you bring in managers that work with young players, and you bring in like coaches from like youth setups and stuff like that, and you get you you become ambitious like that. But Steve Parrish, for me, if he went into Tesco and, and had a meal and picked a meal deal, he gets plain ham on white bread, ready salted crisps, and a bottle of water. That's it. Like, if you showed him a, a paprika bag of crisps, he'd himself. He'd just be like, oh my God, that's too much of a risk. Like, I'm just, well, I don't like that. I'll go with what I know. Also, I feel like the signings they've made have been terrible as well. Jean-Philippe Mateta, I mentioned that big goal he scored against Leicester last season. And he scored a couple of important goals for Palace. But what's he scored? Four goals in, I don't know how many games. Terrible. Osson Edouard was brilliant at Celtic. Has not reproduced the form in the Premier League at Crystal Palace. And that's just two signings I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, Aryu has been there for absolutely ages. I mean, he's okay, but I mean, Palace want better than okay players. If you have okay players, you'll finish in an okay position, which is 13th. And and you know what? The best chance they've got of finishing in the top half is with Elise, is with Eze, is with Gay. And if they're still finishing 13th, 12th with those players, then... Marley's right. They are going to want to move away, aren't they? Yeah. And I think with the point you made on Roy Hodgson, that quote of uh, you either die a hero or you see yourself live long enough to become the villain. I'm just going to reword that, not to die, but you either retire a hero 
or you stay in the job long enough to see yourself become the villain. That's the way I see this situation because like you said, I remember on last last season on the final day when he kept Palace up and he got a standing ovation, walked off the pitch yeah. and you just knew that if he comes back, he'll never get that uh, send-off ever again. No, the moment's gone, and isn't it? It's gone. I and mean, Everyone that's... will forget that as well because everyone yeah. will have the taste of them, you know, really having a really awful ending at the end. And let's not and... get it wrong here. Roy's tactics have been poor. Palace are in a bad run of form at the moment and he has to take some of the responsibility for that. But as I said to Marley, I feel sorry for him because he can only yeah. work with what he's been given. He's working with scraps. Like, like you've said, I think uh, Parrish is just so risk-averse. I think he's actually quite happy and content to just coast in the Premier League because it means guaranteed revenue, they retain their Premier League status. It's almost like he needs a new investment partner, someone a little bit more ear to the ground, someone outside of the club to come in and say, right, let's make Palace a London club here. You've got one of the best academies in yeah. London. Pay I mean, decent money as well yeah, to players, like, the wages. On, let's make this club like a top eight contender every single season. We've seen it with all the teams around them who are you know, trying to make breakthroughs in different areas, whether it's Brighton with their data or whether it's through, you know, even Burnley, for example, being really ambitious in the summer. I know it's not going well for them, but at least they're showing a bit of ambition. Palace, I'm not seeing that at all. They're playing so safe going with the same manager who they know are going to keep them up. And when he inevitably gets sacked, that's probably the best thing that happens to Palace because they won't be able to bring him back again. Well, maybe they will. Well, you say (laughs) when he inevitably gets sacked, Roy Hodgson is odds on at most bookies, Marley, to be the next Premier League manager to lose his job. And some bookies are already taking bets on who the next Crystal Palace manager will be. And the three front runners, Steve Cooper, Jose Mourinho, as we mentioned last week on the podcast, and Graham Potter, a former Brighton manager who's been out of work for a while. And that would really sever the ties between him and his former club after obviously a failed spell at Chelsea and I think over a year now away from the job. I just wonder whether that would be the route that Crystal Palace take and whether that will change things for them. How do you see it? Because it looks like Hodgson's going to go at some point, whether that's this week, next week, in a month, who knows? Forget Mourinho straight away. Um, If you can convince... Jose Mourinho to go from all these trophy winning and whatever to finishing 13th with a pretty limited squad. He's not going to fancy that job at all. So that, I don't know where that's come from. I think that's just the book. He's having a laugh, really. Um, Potter seems, for me, seems a tap in for West Ham. Um, I think West Ham's a good club for him. And that leaves Cooper, who is perfect, I think, for, for Crystal Palace. I think... When I said before about working with young players, like he he made his name as England under seventeen coach. He works with young players. He coaches them. I think Crystal Palace could be coached into a really good side um, if they have the players there. If they put more investment into finding young players, and Cooper has a bit of a lead on that as well, because because Cooper at Forest was just I'll coach whatever you give me. If he was a bit more involved in I want this player, that player. Or there was someone at Crystal Palace who who will work with him and become a partnership. I think Cooper could be great for them. He's the he's the right age. He can he can be there for five six years if you uh, if you invest in him and allow him to to do what it do what he wants to do. Um, but we'll see where they go. I think that's the sensible suggestion is to go for someone like Cooper or Potter. But if we're criticising Palace for not being ambitious enough, does it get more ambitious? than appointing Jose Mourinho as your manager. That's a statement of intent, is it not? Yeah, but it doesn't make sense, does it? Because 
where's this ambition all of a sudden? Nor did a nor did appointing Roy Hodgson on a permanent basis in the summer. That didn't make sense either, mate. They they're gonna send an email to Mourinho and say, "Are you interested? And what what wage do you want?" Curl up in a ball and be like, "He wants how much?" And then just how much to sack him if it all goes wrong? And we I can't afford that compensation. We're gonna have to sell Eze to fund Mourinho's compensation fund if you sack him. It, it's just silly. Yeah, I think you're being quite ambitious thinking he's getting an email back. Exactly. I think, I think Mourinho's assistant will be like, where's the palace located? How much? <laughs> <laughs> you mean we don't yeah, actually it's... get to live in a crystal palace? <laughs> I don't know Al-Shabaab give me that kind of stuff. Wow. <laughs> well, talking of uh, Al-Shabaab, the Saudi league looks set to swoop for a Newcastle United Premier League star. That's it for getting the C. Next, though, we're going to talk about not one, but maybe two potential Newcastle United outgoings as the transfer window begins to heat up heading into the final week or so. Welcome back to Football Social Daily, the award-winning Premier League podcast. So hit subscribe or follow on your favourite podcast platform and that way you won't miss one. And seeing as we don't normally do a podcast on a Friday, I thought I'd whisk myself off to Italy for the weekend, Joel. It is all right for some escape this horrible storm we have over the UK at the moment. I'm going to try some ragu, some tortellini. What else there? Mortadella. I'm going to try everything. Yeah, but can you watch the football? I can. I've got NordVPN. I can set my location back to the UK and I can catch up on any of the Premier League highlights that I might miss. Whilst I'm tucked up in my hotel bed after a gutful of pasta and white wine, <laughs> I'm going to be able to watch the highlights of Luton Town versus Crystal Palace or whoever's playing that weekend. I'm not actually sure what games are this weekend, but as I mentioned, I've got NordVPN and you can get it too by clicking the special link we've got for you in the description, nordvpn.com forward slash FSD. It's a discounted plan where you get four months for free. And what NordVPN does is it allows you to set your geolocation to somewhere else. So for example, when I'm in Italy at the weekend, I can set my location back to the UK and I don't get any geo-blocked content. So I can watch all of the highlights from the Premier League on my phone, just as I would if I was at home. And it's a really useful tool, especially if you do a lot of traveling. And it's a great way just generally to keep yourself safe online as well. There's a lot of scammers, a lot of hackers these days, and using a VPN gives you an extra layer of protection. So make sure you go and check out the deal. It's nordvpn.com forward slash FSD. Four months are free by using that link just for being an FSD listener. Go and check it out. Link is in the description. Now, though, it is the transfer window. So we're going to talk about some of the latest deals, of which there's not been too many, actually, Joel, has there? It's been pretty quiet this January so far. Well, I think that's about to change quite quickly, is it not? When Newcastle get involved in their little Saudi dealings to boost up their FFP score a little bit. Is that not right, Marley? That's not right, no. <laughs> it's all right for Chelsea to do it. Mendy and Kante and all them. And then Liverpool to do it with Fabinho and uh, Firmino and Henderson. It's not all right for us to sell Almiron, is it? No. <laughs> What's going on? I mean, you are directly owned by the Saudi government. <laughs> well, no, I think the Almiron one, and just to bring people up to speed, Miguel Almiron has been linked with a £60 million switch to the Saudi Pro League this 60 January. Million. Six, is that how much it is? What? Oh, no. <laughs> Come on, Marley. Marley, you've That's, got to, that is. They're robbing us. He's worth 85. <laughs> Up to 60. Up to 60. What? The words I've seen in reports is up to 60. Regardless. I mean, four is on its way to 60. But, but this is the know. point I'm trying to make here. Fabinho and Henderson were probably at the end of their Liverpool careers and left in the summer. This is one of Newcastle United's key players who's played really well over the last 12 months and is randomly being sold in January to a Saudi club for a decent chunk of money. 
That's why it's different. And I know you say, Marley, tongue-in-cheek, it's okay for Liverpool to do it, but not for us. I think that's why this one's a little bit of a head-scratcher. You've also sold Javier Manquillo today, someone who I think was on loan anyway and probably isn't going to get a game at Newcastle in the near future. So fair enough, cashed in on him, moved him off your books. But Miguel Almiron is a first-team player who's been impressive under Eddie Howe. And that's why it's so much of a shock. Why does he all of a sudden want to give up Newcastle? Or does he not want to give up Newcastle and the tune have been forced into making this sale? Well, Manquillo was was permanent. Um he was he was he was at Newcastle, he's just been injured all all season, I think. Um so he's gone to Celta Vigo, worked with Rafa Benitez again. Um But yeah, Almiron, I I didn't see this coming really. Um he signed a new contract last year when he went on that run of scoring, I think I think he scored eight games in a row, something weird like that. I think he got 11, 11 in three months before the, um, just before the World Cup. Um, and he's a mainstay in the team, but this is this is where we are as a club um, with PSR or FFP, whatever you want to call it. With that, you, you are now having to sell before you can buy. Um, you have to create room on that on that spreadsheet which no one no one sees the numbers for so good luck trying to work out who we need to sell and when but now we're seeing you know Kieran Trippier to Bayern Munich maybe Callum Wilson to Atletico Madrid I've seen uh, this weekend as well Almiron to, to Saudi and it's like these are players you would never want to sell there's also something about Joe Linton Joe Linton's um, contract is up at uh, next at the end of next season so we could sell him this season because he um he needs the um needs the wages which we can't really afford to stretch too much um and we might need the money on the on the balance sheet with Tenali coming back as well and that kind of takes his place and it's it's just that's just where where football is 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 going now um everyone's it looking feels at like the- a mess though from the outside and I know you're a Newcastle fan so you're probably more privy to the information coming from the sources and newspaper reporters around the club. But from the outside, we've gone from Newcastle finishing in the Champions League to all of a sudden Eddie Howe is one of the favourites to be sacked next in the Premier League, even though Howe's done an excellent job up there on Tyneside. And now you've got Bayern Munich bidding for Kieran Trippier, 15 million euros, which was rejected yesterday, and they're going to come back with another offer, it's expected. And now Miguel Almiron, who's a first-team player, leaving to go to Saudi... And then I've seen other names, as you've mentioned, Wilson and Bruno Gimaraes have also seen linked with a move away. It just feels like everything's falling apart at the seams from a neutral's perspective. Is that the case? I mean, what what is going on? It's it's just what I've what I've just said. With with that tied up by PSR, we we don't have any. Why though? Because because Newcastle was run at a break even by Mike Ashley for fourteen years. The takeover was two years ago, so you've got 21-22, 22-23, and this is the third season. So Newcastle cannot afford to lose more than £105 million over the third season, which is now the end of this campaign, whenever that comes in May. So they know they obviously have to tighten up the books and tighten the drawstrings somewhere. I just don't understand what they've spent all of their money on, where they've somehow managed to shell £105 quid over three years. Well, the money... The money we had left, so for example, like them three years, one's, one or two are COVID affected. And then the third year is everything that is in place from Mike Ashley's Newcastle, who paid, who agreed all the deals and sponsorship at way below uh, market value. So we had a five, we had a shirt sponsor paying five million a season. 
and that, and that was the the fun eight eight sponsorship. So we had to get rid of that, and then we had to get the seller in who were paying I think twenty five million a year, something like that. And then there's loads of um, other little sponsorship deals like Aramco and whoever else you wanna you wanna list off. Um, but that takes time to come into your spreadsheets, and people are like, well, why why can't they spend now? It's like, well, we can't spend now because, as you said, this is our final year of dealing with that crap. So next year, by this time next year, we're going to see the physical money that we got from the Champions League and from the um, the deals with the, the shirt deal and all the other little deals and, and sales and stuff like that. So we'll have more freedom next year. But as of right now, the only way to, to raise funds is to sell off players and we don't have deadwood. Well, I don't. I still don't get why you need to raise funds because football clubs don't break even or make profit. And Mike Ashley's Newcastle, as much as he ran it very conservatively and as we all agreed, it was the right thing for him to sell the club. We've said this for years up to that point when the sale was made. It's rare for football clubs to break even or to even make a little bit of profit, which did happen at times during Ashley's tenure. So Newcastle are actually starting from zero, quite a rare position to inherit when you take over a football club. So I just don't understand why all of a sudden it's this mad scramble to sell players. And I know you're right, the sponsorships under Ashley were worth less than they should be worth. You know, they were below market value or whatever you want to say. I just don't know what Newcastle United have spent all of their money on. Well, we've spent like hundreds of, like over 100 million on players. We signed 50, Tenali was 50, Isaac was 60, Botman was... Isaac was 60? yeah. Uh, Botman was 35, 40. Um, okay, I didn't realise you were paying that much for players, you see. Gordon was 40. Liveramento was 30. Uh, Lewis Hall's got a 28 million activation clause if, if we take it. So we, we've spent we've spent good money. And that's that's only... Like, that's your whack. Like, that's it. You've, you've, that's your load. And we spent it, you know, in the hope that you know, 12 bloody first teamers wouldn't get injured. And then that happened. And now we look a little bit light and in certain areas and we're slipping off in the league because we, we look tired and whatever and all the injuries have taken a toll and stuff. So it just becomes, if you want to spend, you have to sell first. And as I said, we haven't got any dead wood in the squad to, to sell. Javi Manquillo has gone for peanuts to sell to Vigo because he's not worth it. So now it becomes which of our stars... Does it make financial sense to sell? Like, how can we how, how can we um, benefit from losing an asset? And if you look at Trippier, he's been the he's been the most important signing from our club since Alan Shearer. hundred percent, he was absolutely key to everything. But if they're offering you fifty million or anywhere close to that for an asset, then and you've already got Tino Livramento, who's sat on the bench and has proved he's absolutely ridiculously good, and your long-term plan. Trippi is 33, Livramento is 21, 22. We've also got Harrison Ashby out on loan doing really well at Swansea. We've also got Emil Kraft in the squad who can play right back. So you're covered for the next 10 years, conceivably. Like That's the plan. So all of a sudden, Trippi are going... I'd hate it to happen, but it makes financial sense. If if you can get, if you can free up 40, 50 million or even more with the homegrown Trippier thing, I don't know, for some reason it creates more scope on your, on your spreadsheets, then 
it kind of makes sense. And that's that's annoying. I, I don't want to sell Kieran Trippier, of course. I don't want to keep him. He's fantastic and he's captain of the club when Lascelles is on the bench, as he usually is if we're at full strength. But it kind of makes sense. It's the same with Almiron. He's 28. He's coming. To, he's, the, he's at the peak of his value. And you're probably getting a bit more on, on the Saudi value as well. And they're taking him off your wage. If you've then got Harvey Barnes coming back in a couple of weeks, that position's kind of covered. Plus you've got 50 or whatever million you get for him to spend either now or in the summer. And it becomes like tough decisions have to be made now. If we if we don't want to wait years for the spreadsheets to settle out and all the deals and stuff to come in and give you that bit of freedom on the on the um on the the balance sheets which is annoying because as I said before that isn't football oh what's happening on the spreadsheet how much have we got or oh, what sums are, what sums can we do that kind of isn't football however it is now because PSR is that way is that desperate to try and um prove that it's fit for purpose because they're guarding against the Super League and because they're guarding trying to prove themselves a little bit the, the Premier League that is just how it is now um, and Newcastle have probably been one of the first clubs to to um, pull focus on it because everyone's like, oh, well, Newcastle have got all these owners that can spend what they want. Why aren't they doing that? And it's obvious that the rules say you can't. Thinking about what you've just told me about the money you've spent on players, it makes more sense now because when you try to regenerate a squad and you're approaching clubs that know that your ownership has money, mm-hmm. you're never going to be able to get good value or good net spend really are you i mean when you think about players like who's the japanese lad that you had muto 13 million we spent on him we sold him for free well, that's the point that's the point isn't it who's yeah, gonna buy situation. everton have been in you know buying for high selling for nothing yeah. it all adds up doesn't it and towards the end i mean looking at what newcastle spent over the last two years that first summer and after the takeover they spent over like 150 million the likes of isaac mm-hmm. likes of um, botman gordon target like, these all add up quickly and you're forgetting that you're operating on a balance sheet that was pre the Saudi takeover. So I think they're looking at all these sanctions that the Premier League have been doing in the last couple of weeks and thinking, we need to get our ducks in a row quite quickly here because this could all quickly unravel if our, if the summer coming up doesn't go our way and we have to do an even higher financial outlay than we planned. Like what Niall said, clubs know that Newcastle have got money at their disposal to go into the next 20, 30, 40, yeah. 50 years. They know that they can take them on. And so I think Newcastle are trying to account for the fact that they might have to stretch their budget even more. You yeah. know that the Champions League revenue is coming in. So I think they're trying to quickly assemble themselves fast. I just think it's that thing, isn't it? You can't sell players that aren't very good for more than they're worth. And you take a loss on it as well. If you're selling. Yeah. But if you're buying, if players are good, you're going to get charged more than they're worth because they know what yeah. you're worth in terms of your ownership. It's a difficult one. And it's interesting, actually, to get your take on the situation, Marley. That will do us for today, though, on Football Social Daily. Tomorrow, we'll talk about Manchester United's new chief executive who's been pinched from Manchester City and the City Football Group. That'll be interesting, Joel, for you to get your teeth stuck into. Well, he he knows the bigger club in Manchester, finally, after 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) His tweets are different, mate. Don't worry. We've all got to talk good about our employers when we're contracted. (laughs) 
Well, that move won't take place till the summer, but I wonder what other moves will happen this month because we're into the final week or so of the January transfer window. So all of the latest gossip we'll talk about tomorrow as well. So make sure you don't miss it by hitting subscribe or follow on whichever podcast platform you use. But from Joel Marley and I, that's it for today. We'll catch you next time on FSD. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.